Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast, a news chock full edition of Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host. I'm joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, lots going on today. How are you? Well, I still have a job, unlike a couple of Browns coaches. Yeah, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, and who knows if more of this stuff is going to happen. But let's get it. We're going to talk Browns, Cavs, a little Guardians today. I want to get into your faith column. It uh, pertains to Frank Ryan again. Really, really good stuff there, Terry. And uh, But let's get into the Browns first. The coaching changes that have happened today, we're taping this like a little bit after noon on Wednesday. Alex Van Pelt is out as offensive coordinator, and also running backs coach Stump Mitchell is out, and so is tight ends coach TJ McCartney. A little surprising to me, but Terry, you've kind of been digging to see what you can find out about this. Were you surprised by any of this, or or did it make sense to you when you saw this? Where are you at with this? Surprised, yes, Um, but given how uh, things work in the NFL, first of all, coaches get fired. They change staffs around. I got some numbers for you. This is a ranking. Pro Football Focus, one rank, 32. ESPN quarterback rating, 33. The regular quarterback rating, 24. Those are what Deshaun Watson ranked and the different analytic um, valuations of quarterbacks. Remember how the Browns operate. They like the analytics and that, and frankly, Maybe it's a little low, but you look at how Deshaun played this past year, it was really up and down. Uh, By comparison, for example, uh, Baker and Flacco were around 25, 24, you know, in there, that that area. So um, they weren't uh, uh, there. Baker ranked 12th in one of those rankings. So, uh, okay. So what's going on here? I wrote a column about the Browns' stability uh, right before the weekend. But one of the lines in there is stability does not mean complete continuity. And by that meaning that, yes, you keep Andrew Barry, you keep Kevin Stefanski, and it talked about how last year they changed really coaching on two other sides of the ball, two other units, the special teams and the defense. And I think now this year, they tackled the offense, and they looked at those ratings there, and they said, okay, how much is Stefanski? How much is these other guys? We're not tra- we're not changing Stefanski. Something's got to change because even though Deshaun Watson had some good games, he ranked you know in the lower half of quarterbacks in the NFL. Fact. Period. And this is a huge investment in him. Now, let's stop for a moment. I want to just – Bill Barnwell from ESPN, who's pretty good analytically or whatever, but I can't believe he missed this key point. And actually, our Jimmy Watkins did to an extent too, although Jimmy was much more on the right path than Bill Barnwell. The big point is this. When it comes to trading Deshaun Watson, he has a no-trade clause. He has a no-trade clause. This should be in capital letters, bold print. What does that mean? For example, he signed a contract extension with Houston for four years. One year into that extension, he asked to be traded. Then, remember, he sat out. All that stuff happened. Then came the uh, -the off-the-field problems. Then when the Browns and other teams went to trade for him, his agent turned around and took what was supposed to be a meet-and-greet meeting, you know, Deshaun's a good guy, all that, into a total contract renegotiation and came out of it with the biggest contract and guaranteed in NFL history. And that, by the way, still remains the same. Now, David, you are Deshaun's agent. You hear the Browns want to trade him. You know, Barnwell's position was for a seventh round pick to, you know, Atlanta, name a team. So what are you thinking at this point? You're Deshaun's agent. Shaking it up a little bit. I don't know. (laughs) That's what he does. But but they they have they have the upper hand in all of this. They they can do do whatever they want. Yeah. Okay. You want even though Deshaun likes Atlanta, we want two more years in the contract. We can say whatever we want. 
So Terry, my question. So whenever you're wondering what's going on with the Browns, especially on offense, there's one question: like how do how do we get this to work for Deshaun Watson? That's like what everybody's asking in that building. Do you yes. think that any of these because, changes yes, had on, to do Dave. with? Is that where you're going with this? No, I'm not yet. Because okay. there's no way out with Deshaun Watson. In other words, people stop with the trade machines and all this other stuff. You got him for another year. Stop thinking about how they can make Joe Flacco the starter. Whatever you want to do, he's here. Now, go to your point. Okay, so it's all about Deshaun Watson and maximizing his value to this team and to this offense. Do you think that that point is behind these changes or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just ranked ranked the the ratings, 32, 33, 24. There was a couple others. None of them had Deshaun in the top half. Let me, let me rephrase my question. I, I didn't phrase it the right way. Do you think that yeah. Deshaun is behind these changes in terms of trying to, he and his agent trying to make them happen? Or do you oh. think it was the Browns looking at everything and saying, we've got to make some changes, like you mentioned with Joe Woods? No, I don't think, I don't think Deshaun is driving this bus at all. I think this okay. is done by uh, front office analytics, um, Kevin, because they said, Kevin, and look, maybe the defense got blown out in Houston. And the special teams had some ups and downs, but it was remarkably better than it was the previous year before we made these changes. So now let's attack the offense, which has been very, very, um, there's your continuity all the way through pretty much. And I mean, I can't tell, I don't know if Stump Mitchell, he was supposed to be a good running backs coach, but I don't know. I mean, I have no clue on the tight end coach McCartney who was let go. You know, Van Pelt was in a weird spot because he was the offensive coordinator slash quarterback coach, but really he was probably more like the quarterback coach. He, he didn't call plays. You know, supposedly he had input in that, but really Kevin was calling the plays. Now, if you're the Browns and I'm going, even if you're Jimmy Haslam, say, and you're looking at these numbers with Andrew Barry going 33, 32, 24, 320 million. Or two hundred thirty million, excuse me. Probably feels like three zillion. It's like, what are we doing? All right, so I'm going to think like a Browns fan here, Terry. Put yeah. my Browns hat, my Browns fan hat on. Comparing this to what's going on in Chicago right now, right? The Bears mm-hmm. have, are keeping Eberflus because the defense has shown remarkable improvements. And they've fired Luke Getze, the former Akron quarterback, who was the offensive coordinator, revamping the entire offense. But they're keeping the head coach. All right. So that's happening in Chicago. Here, the Browns did that kind of last year. They kept yep. Stefanski and got rid of and did a complete overhaul of the defense. But now, Kevin Stefanski calls the plays. Kevin Stefanski is supposed to be the offensive head of production here. So why? Like, that, that's what I'm getting at. Like, shouldn't some of this fall on Kevin Stefanski? And I get it. Like coaching staffs are like bands, right? They spend a lot of time together. There's a lot, they're going to break up. People move on and go solo or whatever you want to say. But like Kevin Stefanski is in charge of the offense. This is not a repeat of last year. Like he, his job is to maximize Deshaun Watson. So it's just weird to me that like Alex Van Pelt is out, but like Kevin Stefanski calls the plays and he gets the final say on what what plays are run and he shapes the final game plan offensively for every week, right? Okay. If you're yes. a fan, you have to be thinking that. Sure. That's 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 what is today. Now, what tomorrow will bring could be something different. By the way, one of the things Stefanski was challenged to do when they made those changes on defense and with special teams is you have to become a better overall leader of your team. He was challenged to do that and saying, we're giving you better leaders on defense and special teams, which they did. You know, Ventrone and Schwartz. By the way, remember all the I'm not playing on third down, all the stuff. I mean, I could even think back a couple of years ago when Odell was sitting on the water cooler with his shoes off. All that that stuff all stopped. So between the changes on those other coaching staffs, uh, those other units, excuse me, and I I do think Kevin grew as an overall leader. But now they're saying, all right, Kevin, 
Stability does not mean complete continuity. This is a Barry saying, by the way. So, if our guy, we're just looking solely at how Watson played, because as you said, that's what they got to get fixed. And when up to your other point, you know, maybe there was bad chemistry with the tight ends coach. I don't know. I mean, I'm not around, but I'm just looking big picture. And so that ends up with Van Pelt being out, and they're probably going to try to bring in somebody else to liven things up. Now, if you're the Browns and you look at what Todd Munkin did with Lamar Jackson, something like that. Now, whether that could be where even if Kevin's calling the plays, a new approach to offense changes because Kevin, even though he says he could coach any style of quarterback, we saw it with Flacco again. Put put him under center, run those play fakes, and boy, you got an offense that's cooking. He he had even had it to some extent with Jacoby Brissett, and of course he had Baker's one really good year. Case Keenum, my guy, went thirteen and three or whatever it was running that offense. But that's not an offense that's going to work with Deshaun. Well, let me ask you this, Terry. So this reminds me a little bit of what, what's going on at Ohio State right now. Ryan Day is is losing to Michigan, yeah. right? And and they're looking at bringing in an offensive coordinator, kind of a Jim Schwartz of the offense, so that Ryan Day can elevate himself above everything, set the tone of the team, think big picture, how are we going to beat Michigan, mm-hmm. you know, the culture, all that stuff. I think that's part of what they're doing. Are we going to see the end of Kevin Stefanski? Did they not have – this is just a theory. I'm wondering if they didn't have – believe that Alex Van Pelt could be a play caller and maybe they want to find someone to, who can be the Jim Schwartz of the offense so that Kevin maybe turns the play calling over to this person, which allows him to – I was going to get into this later about the game Saturday. The Browns came out flat. Yeah, and and that fall, and you wrote this, Terry. That falls on the coaching. All of them. Yep. And 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 does this, if some kind of a Jim Schwartz move on offense, free Kevin Stefanski up to make sure that this team is fired up and ready to go for the playoff games, uh, and and more of a uh, taking a pul- the pulse of the team and not be so worried about what are we going to call on third and eight? Do you see that happening? That maybe this is the beginning of Stefanski pulling back from play calling? No. All right. Here's Interesting. what I know. Okay. Here's Tell me know. why. All right. Because I have been told, top sources, all that, they like Kevin as a play caller. Now, do they want to change how the offense looks? Have Kevin sit down with somebody else besides Alex Van Pelt in the offseason so that the quarterback wouldn't rank 32, 33, 24? Come up with a different offense? But. I think Kevin passed the test that they wanted, despite what happened in that playoff game, of becoming more of an overall leader. And he, they did withstand and handle the adversity in that. They really did. So he passed that test. Now it's like, I mean, really, if you're in a position of leadership, David, and you say, it's clear the numbers show, yes, we won games at four quarterbacks, but we have one quarterback that's got to carry the team, and the offense wasn't all that good with him. You know, you can point to the second half in Baltimore where he completed all 14 passes and did well. You can point to Tennessee where 27-3, um, to 3, he, was, he was pretty much dynamite that whole game. Uh, he played, played very well against a terrible Arizona team. Uh, but you could also look at, again, even the opener against the Bengals, he wasn't very good. Pittsburgh, he was terrible. Um, you just kind of go around. And and just overall, you know, the offense that, that they wanted to see now was run a little differently, but the offense they wanted to see was the Flacco offense, the explosion, downfield, big plays. That's what they, they want to find. That's what they thought they were getting in, in Watson. They're wondering what happened to the Deshaun Watson, who completed 67% of his passes with the Houston uh, Texans. By the way, the highest percentage of any quarterback who had thrown 1,500 or more NFL passes at that point in history came here, and this guy could barely complete 60% of his passes here. 
But that's what I'm saying, Terry. The same guy was calling plays for both of those yeah. situations. Mm-hmm. Like it, Kevin Stefanski oversaw the good and the bad of Deshaun Watson this year. Correct. Like, that's a fact. But I think and, they, they think there's something wrong structurally with the offense for Watson. And so this is about bringing in fresh ideas, getting a new start, and and Schwartzizing the offense, basically, yeah. for lack of yeah. a better term. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And then you turn around. And Kevin still calls. They like him as a play caller. They do. I mean, I now watch. I find out next week he's not going to call the plays. You know, <laughs> the, things can change, as we know, in the heartbeat, both in Berea and in the NFL. They just can't. I mean, two weeks ago, nobody was talking about firing Mike McCarthy. That's true. <laughs> Three Here months today, ago, no, nobody would even think about getting rid of Nick Sirianni. So. When I'm saying that they really like Kevin in terms of his play calling and that, that's like as of going into Houston. How's that? Right. right. All <laughs> right. All right. So, listen, we got to get into the game Saturday. Sure. Um, I think Browns fans, people were asking me how the fans in Cleveland were taking it, and I guess my response was that they were they were disappointed and there wasn't rage. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. like – there was irritation and a little bit of anger, but not rage that you might see. But to have the to have the team play that way, like if in the, in the players after the game saying we didn't show up, like if they were if they would have told the fans and everybody that they weren't going to show up, like we, you and I both got our predictions wrong last week because we thought they were going to show up and they didn't show up. Uh, what happened and where was this best defense in the world? They weren't even the best defense on the field Saturday. Oh, not even close. Um, I have not broken down, looked at the tape and broken it down, David. It just seemed like to me it was a lot of soft coverage. Did you notice? I think it was a lot of soft coverage and a lot of guys getting beat in man coverage. I mean, it was yeah. everything. It was right? everything. It, yeah. it was bad technique. Ronnie Hickman was getting turned around like <laughs> in in ways that I haven't seen this season where he, 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 he his hips went completely the wrong way on that. That deep pass, um, it was I, it was bad everywhere. I guess you turn around and look at, you know, we talked about how on offense the injuries hit. One thing that um, the safety position got decimated, and then you, Ronnie Hickman is not supposed to be starting or playing as many snaps as he did in a playoff game when he's an undrafted rookie. Uh, but he was because, what, McLeod was out. Um, who else are they, were they missing in the safety spot? Grant Delpit. So, Delpit was out, and Thornhill's on one leg. So it just it just was sort of too much. Yeah, Delpit was really missed because he was having a Pro Bowl year, I thought, until all that hit. So that was one. Secondly, I don't quite understand the, the theory you hear Miles and others say, well, they were getting rid of the ball quickly. True. So why were those guys open deep though all the time? That's that's a great question. And yeah. you were there, Terry. I, I remember I was watching a. I happened to stumble upon a Bill Belichick coaching show one time mm-hmm. <laughs> during his time with the Patriots, and he did a whole segment one day showing about. I want to show you a bunch of clips about when we're playing well, what happens, and somebody made a tackle, and five guys ran up and started celebrating with him. And then there was another tackle, and three guys went over and started celebrating with the guy and patting him on the helmet and the shoulder pads. And the whole game, even before they were, you know, before they were winning, this is while the game was still in question. There were guys running around celebrating, firing each other up. You were there at the game Saturday. The only guy I saw doing any of that was JOK mm-hmm. on defense, and I didn't see anybody getting fired up with him like we did uh, at the Jets game. There was just no energy there, and it, it gets me wondering, like, the Browns are so even-keeled. Sometimes I wonder if they're too even-keeled, especially on the road. And I, I, what, what do you think of that? It's just it's it's just like we're going to just fight through adversity, but, like, wh- they need someone to get things fired up and get people engaged and, and, and get the juices going. What was Certainly, it like there at the game? Really, Did you see any of that? No, I just thought – well, first of all, I thought, I thought they were just in shock because – the defense of what was happening to them, the breakdowns and that. Because remember, along with the big plays that they did hit, 
there was a, that tight end Schultz dropped a, just dropped a pass in the first half. There was a touchdown. And uh, Stroud overthrew, I forgot which receiver it was, who was like 20 yards behind the defense. I mean, they could even hit more big plays. And so I can't really – I'm just not good enough to know tactically or whatever. But in terms of what you were saying, the spirit, they look to me uh, like a really good pitcher. And all of a sudden, it's like every third pitch he throws is being hit off the wall or over the wall. It's like, what is going on? Do they know what I'm throwing? I can't, you know. And then that's all I could just say. Interestingly, though, early in the year, and some of the time I remember getting emails from fans who thought the Browns were too exuberant because there were times when they were celebrating when they were losing. So I guess once in a while you can't win with that. But they did look to me like a team that was shocked. 24 points, and it could have been more in the first half, uh, given how poorly they played. That's that's all I, that's all I saw. And also that environment in there, those Texan fans, there were some Cleveland fans, and not a lot. Those are Texan fans, and they were ready to roll. And, of course, this reminded me a little bit, too, of how the Browns sometimes steamrolled some teams at times. You know, they got up early, the crowd got behind them, and it was over. Yeah, just to not just to go back to what I was saying, like I, I don't mean celebrating in terms of yeah, yeah look at this great play we made. Right. I, you know what I'm talking about? Like guys are like, hey, great play, like way to go and way to get in there, way to stick your head in there and make tackle. And uh, I, I didn't see a lot of that part. Maybe it was mm. part of it was, but I mean the Browns I, know they have a problem. I mean Stefanski said the other day we have a problem on the road. Like he admitted yeah. it, and we're going to dig into it. And that to me is not a numbers problem. That's a that's a psyche. I mean, who gets this team fired up before road games? And, and also, I don't know. He, I don't know the answer to that question. He did mention um, miscommunication and the infamous gap integrity. In other words, basically over pursuit. And JOK, who was by far wins the effort award in that game. He messed up at least once, if not twice, on things that led to big games. There was a screen pass that went for 75 yards to a tight end, and uh, Ogbo, Ogbo and JOK were chasing Stroud. Nobody took the tight end. I think the linebacker probably there was supposed to take the tight end. Uh, somebody was supposed to. Neither one did. And there was another play where it seemed like he did get fooled some, but I'm not going to beat on the one guy that, that played his butt off, you know, in that game. But you were correct, though. He was all over the place. You know, Miles at the end, I wonder if um, I wonder if Miles simply runs out of gas towards the end of these seasons. I mean, physically. Well, yeah, we need to talk about that for a minute, Terry, right? Like, yeah. When you are in the playoffs, your great players have to play, play yeah. great. And you got Amari Cooper, who's heel was giving him all kinds of trouble you could see it uh after one catch especially he was really having trouble would, but but again miles garrett doesn't have a great game and then after the game there's like the press conference and i don't even know like it's it's the same thing it's like sometimes there's veiled shots at people in yeah. there and, and and it's just like dude if you're a fan watching that you're like you're supposed to be our best defensive player and and, and zadarius smith i i have to check to make sure he was playing i'm like did he no. get hurt in pregame like, where was he? But anyway, Miles Garrett is – he's a great player. And if you're a fan, you have to be asking, like, is this guy a great leader? I, I don't know the answer to that question at this point in his career. I had a, I had a top executive tell me My, – Miles is uh, one of the players we were talking about. He said, not every great player is a great leader. They're just not. And he said they're not wired that way. And he's speaking from the outside, but he was on the inside of the NFL. And he said – to me, Miles is not a great leader. You know, Miles is is a but that doesn't you want him on your team? You know, granted he had the the car act whatever. He has played a ton of games. He has played hurt. He's played with asthma during COVID. Um, you know, it, the stats speak for themselves. I mean, you don't maybe like to be even bet, bigger in some of the, better in some of the bigger games, but. Just because a guy, his point was was a great player, doesn't make him a great leader, and and he's not the leader on the defense, and that may be one of the things they may have to address in the off season. I think they were hoping Thornhill could do that, but he was hurt all the time. Yeah, he wasn't out there all the time. See, yep. the the leader's got to be out there. 
you know, that's the other thing. I mean, the, with the Browns having exit interviews this week, I, and, and I, I guess it's okay if Miles Garrett isn't a great leader. Like, you're right, that happens, but somebody's somebody's, somebody's got to be. be. I, I wonder no. if they're going to be talking to JOK about that. Yeah. Like, yeah. listen, with the year yeah. you have, you need to lead these guys to where we're going. And, and you know, Walker has been hurt so much. I right. mean, who knows how he's going to be next year? I just think they need to hang this leadership thing on JOK and maybe make him the guy. Miles is a great player. Let him do his thing. But when it comes to just firing guys up and getting their heads in the right right space, maybe this is the guy they're going to lean on in the I future. Like I, don't know. I mean, you know, another guy's a great player, but he's not a great leader is Denzel Ward. Very quiet. Great part. This is, you can't. Good point. Yeah. So that's not a knock on either guy. It's kind of like, and then of course what happens, like Anthony Walker is a great leader, but he can't stay healthy. You know, so there, Thornhill apparently is a, that's what they, you know, in Kansas City there, and he seemed to be, but he couldn't stay on the field. So you have all those things that, um, you're right, they need to develop some of the younger guys, whether it's Delpit or JOK or a combination of those two, that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe they need to make a trade uh, or a free agent, somebody who comes in with some natural leadership abilities to help. But I'm not going to, I mean, I've been watching Miles now since, wait, 2018 he's drafted. So you look at that, and excuse me, 2019. 17, 17. 17, that's right, because he's a four. I always get Baker at 18. I I get confused. He's 17, Baker's 18. Um, So this is who he is. It's not going to change. And I do believe his shoulder is And that's okay, right? But, like, it's got to be somebody. Somebody else. But I, the natural thing to do is, is point to Miles Garrett. He's the highest paid guy in this. But, um, you know, that's it, – it's, it's an interesting – these are the discussions they're having. I really believe that. In the same way, like you and I were sort of all over the ballpark trying to figure out what, what's going on with Van Pelt, Watson, play calling. They're having that. But, I mean, the one thing they're not having is, well, gee, maybe we could trade Watson and get off him. No, this is all about Watson. Now. The other big questions that hang over the Browns that won't be answered for months and months and months, what would they be? Man, you put me on the spot there. It's sort, it's <laughs> sort, it's sort of obvious if you think about it. What won't we know probably till in the training camp or whatever? Oh, Deshaun Watson's shoulder is the big yep. one. And is that what you were thinking about? It, absolutely. Tell, tell me the other one. I'm not going to get it. Nick Chubb. <laughs> Nick Chubb and his two knee operations. These are huge parts of your offense coming off of major surgeries. And so you could, for example, tailor the ideal offense for Deshaun. But if that shoulder keeps acting up, it's not going to work. Or the shoulder comes back faster and stronger than you thought, and you could change the offense all around. And guess what? Maybe it would have been okay anyway, because he finally totally healthy, which he rarely was last year. So that's that's hanging over it. But that it's it's impossible to talk about injuries when a guy will be better because you don't know. Well, the Browns say Watson's going to be ready to roll by spring, and that's good news. And we'll see how that goes. So we we got we do have one more Watson question to get into, Terry. And then I want to do a quick weekly kicker update to cap the season on that. So, all right, you ready for this question? It's from Alan Gilbert in Columbus. He says, hey, Terry and David, I have a short question for you. You spoke of Joe Flacco being a faith multiplier, quoted from Amari Cooper. Might that extend to Deshaun Watson to next year? Might we see an improved version of Watson next year inspired by Joe Flacco? Might Flacco be an influence on an even and even as a mentor to Watson to channel his talents to a more elite level. If this is discussed next year, remember you heard it here first. <laughs> Again, it's from Alan Gilbert in Columbus. Thanks for that, Alan. Uh, what about that question of Joe Flacco's influence? I don't think Joe Flacco and Deshaun Watson spent like all their time together. I think it was very limited probably yeah. because of very Watson's little rehab and everything. But no. just watching the way Flacco conducted himself, was there anything you think that that Deshaun Watson will learn maybe for next year that he could put into implementation? I actually doubt it. I really do because he wasn't around. Secondly, Flacco came in at the ideal time for a guy like Flacco. And the um, faith multiplier comment was made because 
Amari Cooper was coming off of P.J. Walker and DTR. So this veteran quarterback comes in there and who is precise with his passing, you know, routes and knowledge of football. In other words, two older veterans get together and immediately they're talking the same language and they're following it. That's a faith multiplier. Now, had Flacco come in directly after Watson, that may not have been the case because Watson is a veteran quarterback in that. So that's that's why Amari said what he did. Um, and also, Watson's personality is Watson's personality is different than Flacco. And so, we'll, you know, if Watson plays really well, Watson was known as a very good leader until recently. He was known as an excellent leader at, Colum- at uh, Clemson and was known as a good leader until things went sideways in Houston. So it's in there somewhere. It was hard to measure the leadership qualities here because it's been two years of suspensions and injuries and all that kind of stuff. All right, we do have one more question about Watson and Flacco. Uh, Neil from Jamestown, New York, a longtime listener, sent this in literally like three minutes after the game ended Saturday. (laughs) And he says, hey, Terry, the Flacco ride was fun, but the beautiful carriage driven by Flacco just turned back into a pumpkin driven by Watson and loaded with a ton of baggage. Your thoughts? So I was thinking about this, Terry. Do you think that there's a little bit of like the – in terms of the fan – sentiment toward this team the Flacco ride was so fun and different do you think it kind of cleansed the palate a little bit for fans and now when Watson comes back it can kind of be a fresh start or do you think like Neil is suggesting there's still going to be some baggage that fans will bring or do you, th- do you feel like this could be a new start for Watson and the fans relationship Watson, Watson's got to start fast I'll tell you that the fans love the Flacco thing uh, especially a number of my friends who are female fans I mean they, he says you know only treated you know Deshaun was our guy. We cheered for him. But it's just so much easier not to have that. It was a move that fractured the fan base. Not everybody, but a fair amount of people. And the only way that really gets healed is for Watson to go out and play like a top 10 quarterback. I'm not saying top five, a top 10. You can't be 24, 33, 32, you know, those numbers. You can't be that. So that's what I think will will happen, and it'll be a while. That that's one of those questions that falls into big things we won't know for quite a while. Is you know how good is Watson after the surgery? How does the offense click with him? All right, Terry. Well, it we've gone long on the Browns here, but justify justifiably so. So we're going to cap this off with the Terry weekly kicker update. Kicking didn't come into play Saturday because the game was such a blowout. But one good thing that the Browns have going for them, Dustin Hopkins is signed for next year. Mm -hmm. I think it's $3 million. So they've got a kicker that they can believe in, and he'll be healthy after this offseason. 33 of 36 on field goals with a long of 58, 91.7%. 24 of 26 on extra points. 8 of 8 on field goals from 50 yards or longer. So this is a good thing, right? Yeah, and I would keep Riley Riley Patterson on the practice squad. I saw enough of him to know at least you know in an emergency situation you could put him in there and he's not going to start missing three extra points in a game or something. So I would try to keep him. Yeah, if if you need a forty-two yarder, you can send him out there and he'll probably make it. I mean, when you're talking that that level of kicker, yeah, just somebody that guy's coming in there not to win the game, just not to like miss extra points and miss everything. I know he missed an extra point, but he, he came back and, and, and kicked fine in the op- other opportunities. So I thought that was a positive that came out of the injury uh, to Dustin. All right. We'll take a break here, Terry. Anything else on the Browns? Or should we take a break. We need a break. Okay. Well, when we come back, we're going to get into the Cavaliers. I know you want, you've been hearing from, from some critics of uh, J.B. Bickerstaff. So we'll get into that. Some Cavs, a little bit of Guardians when we return on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell, Terry Pluto. All right, Terry, the Cavs are 23-15 and 15 and on a hot streak here. And don't look now, but they are up to the number four seed in the Eastern Conference if the playoffs were to be held today. We're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. They're 10-3 and three with this new lineup. And, man, what do you think of what you're seeing? There's, there's you know, Mobley and Darius Garland are starting to work their way back, doing some basketball stuff. Uh, what do you think of the Cavs right now, the state of the Cavs in, in Terry's mind? What I was really pleased with, and Chris Fedor 
Chris does such a great job at our basketball. He really does. Um, yes. He uh, he's tremendous. Uh, the the Cavs now, since I think in the last thirteen games, are in the top ten in defense also with the new lineup. It wasn't that way early on, but they fixed it and gotten back to that identity. Because my fear was jacking up all these threes, even if you're doing it in the context of some pretty good passing. Remember, they've been throwing just about more passes than anybody else in the NBA in that span. You still could get very lazy on defense because the bad thing about when you miss a lot of three-pointers, they tend to be longer shots come off the rim longer and farther. That makes it easier for the other team to fast break. So the good thing is they've been able still, especially the last six or seven games, especially to get their defense in order in different ways. And this goes to the point on JB is I just got so tired of some of the criticism of JB. I mean, major criticism. People wanted to fire him and everything else. And it's like, this guy's a good coach. I'm not saying he's the best coach or whatever. He, in, on the fly, in the middle of the season, has retooled this team. Now, his big challenge would be when those guys get back, but that's a, way, that's a ways off yet. But if they had turned around and went 3-10 and 10, instead of 10-3, and 3, they could have buried themselves by the time they came back. Because keep in mind, when Mobley does play, say it's in three or four weeks or whatever it is, he is coming off knee surgery. And then Darius Garland had his jaw wired shut, so he wasn't able to do anything. He says, like, drink protein drinks and stuff like that i mean i love how really, chris mentioned yeah. darius garland brought a straw to paris so that he could I mean, eat he did blended gourmet poor meals. guy you know it's like <laughs> and and he's not been able to when you got the jaw wired shut you can't anybody your last thing you want to do is get it in the face so it's going to take a while to get those guys back in order uh and and that's why this has been an important stretch for them and i just the the unselfishness that they built and team culture with these guys. And now you have to give Kobe Altman credit for, you know, the three free agents. He kept Levert, which wasn't easy. He had to talk him into that and talk him into coming off the bench. And then of course, Niang and Struess. And then on top of it, you know, so like they, the Sam Merrill was undrafted free agent. Now Craig Porter seems to have fallen out of the rotation. I'm not quite sure what that's about, but he has, but two undrafted guys like that, that are very important. And, you know, I mean, I'll just say, JB, 22 wins, 44 wins, 51 wins, and now what he's doing this year, it's a good coach. Yeah, they're they're on pace. I mean, it's we'll talk about this in a second, but it's been a little bit of an easy stretch here, but they can yeah. get back on pace for 50-plus wins if they keep this up. So, uh, yeah, and I always get an interesting tidbit or two when I read Chris Fedor's stuff, but he, he mentioned mm-hmm. the other day, he wrote a whole story about the defense, and they start every meeting going over defense yeah like first thing which i thought was really revealing going back to what you're saying about jb terry and you know they held the bulls to 91 points the other night chris had this in his story the, the bull shot 42.2 percent from the field and 28.1 percent from three-point range and it's the third lowest scoring total by an opponent this season and it's the, the second time the bulls have not scored 100 points all season yeah. and it was against the yeah. Cavs. so it goes all to what you're talking about terry uh do you think, just real quick, do you think the Cavs can come out better on the other side of these injuries? Everybody was worried about, like you said, a losing streak. Or, sure. But they've got guys now who understand their abilities and their roles and their identities through this process where they've gotten called into action. And now when you go to a guy off the bench, it's like not like, well, can he do this? But he's done this. Is is this going to be a positive, you think, down the road for the Cavs that they can pull on this experience they've had? Partly, because minutes are going to be cut. See, the other thing that helps a player's confidence is minutes, playing time. Uh, the other thing that's going to be fascinating is Jarrett Allen playing at an all-star level. Now, when Mobley comes back, that does clog up the middle some and everything. It will help them their interior defense, but it does clog up the middle on offense. How's that going to work? And remember, early on, we had a discussion on my theory, and I, I think it's proved to be correct because it wasn't it wasn't exactly a brainstorm of any type. You put the ball in Donovan Mitchell's hands. He drives the offense. He plays total basketball. He's rebounding. He's passing. He's doing everything. Much like when 
the Bulls had problems at guard, and even all their standstill shooters were out, and they put the ball in Michael's uh, arms and said, the offense is yours. And he, Michael almost averaged a triple-double doing it. Uh, so I'm not surprised that this has happened with, uh, with Donovan. Now, when Donovan comes back with um, Garland, how is that going to work together? Maybe you end up with Garland just playing less minutes because he's got the broken jaw and all that, and you work it that way. See, those would be JB's next set of challenges. We in, incorporating these guys back in to the offense because the offense the way it is now, if you have Garland and Mobley on the floor with Mitchell uh, and Struess, it's not going to run the same way. You have some. It's not. I'm just envisioning the spacing yeah, that they're going to have and yeah, how a sweet that'll be. Yeah. Yeah, you, it's going to be different, and it, and, yeah. and so that that's going to be the challenge. Uh, but the fact that they were able to quickly adjust and quickly get the players to adapt to this and get more out of these other guys is both a testimony to JB and also the front office and how they work together on this. Well, I think one thing JB does have going for him is there's a lot of games yep. and there's a lot of games against different opponents and Dean Wade might play 25 minutes one night and 12 the next, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the opponents. And and so guys may be able to have their minutes spike and go down based on what the matchup is and who they're guarding and, and things like that. So that might help. But yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see this next stretch here and how they make it all work because it's working now. And it's, ph- it's phenomenal to see Dean Wade's plus minus. <laughs> it's like, it's really high. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like a lot of things not out there doing a whole lot, but they play better with him. And so that's, and when he's making a few shots, that really helps them. Yeah, when you got Donovan Mitchell telling you to shoot, shoot, shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that see, helps a lot you when you're Dean Wade. Yeah, but see, Mitchell, <laughs> that's what I meant about really, it's almost like the quarterback. We're running like a no huddle offense. And it's yours. Well, that's the same thing they've told Mitchell. And Mitchell's not worried about, do I got to get Garland the ball or whatever? He's just playing. And those guys are moving without the ball. I would like to see Garland really learn to run off some picks and run up without the ball. And he, I, over the years, I've, I saw, say, mentioned I saw some of Mark Price in his game. Price had to learn to do that. Because when he came to the Cavs, he was a point guard at Georgia Tech, and he just the ball's in his hands. But they, Lenny Wilkins, convinced him that you could run off picks and that, and they would put the ball in Craig Ewell's hands, uh, and they were running Price off these picks, and it really helped his three point shooting, and it took some of the burden off of him because a lot of times teams wanted to press Price just to wear him down, so they have Ewell bring it up. Now. You don't have to worry because you have Garland and you have Mitchell. Uh, either one could bring the ball up. And Struess has got really nice ball handling skills too. But in terms of getting more movement when those two guys are out there, it might be uh, incumbent upon Garland just to learn how to play without the ball more. That's going to be a fun experiment. It really yeah. is. So now, I right, don't know well, if just... JB's thinking that. That was just my idea. <laughs> All right, well, just to put some context on this, Terry, before we move on from the Cavs, the Cavs, six of these games have been against teams that are mm-hmm. under 500, some of them five games under 500, and it's going to get a little tough, tougher here starting tonight. They're playing Milwaukee at home. Then they've got Atlanta. Atlanta's 14-21. and 21. That's on Saturday. And then three games against, um, boy, Orlando, then two against Milwaukee ne- next week, and then yeah. against, against the Clippers on the 29th. So we're going to find out if these changes are going to work against te- some pretty good teams coming up. So that's one of those things you look basketball. at that and you go, if they could, well, I think there's six games in there or something. If you come out three and three, uh, you say, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right, Terry, let's move on to the guardian. So we got, man, it's such a news packed day today. It's been crazy, mm-hmm. but we got word today that there's discussions going on between Amazon and diamond sports, which owns Bally sports network, which, airs the Cavs and the Guardians games about maybe moving them to Amazon Prime and showing them on Amazon. But we're hearing that maybe MLB doesn't want the Guardians and some of the other teams to move to Prime and 
there's a lot we don't know here, but it, at least something's happening. And from the Guardian's point of view, you, you, you got to hope they're going to get some clarity on how much money this is going to mean so they can set their payroll and decide how much they have. Uh, we don't know a lot about what's going on. There's a lot of reporting happening. I, I, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of meetings and teleconferences happening today between Amazon, MLB, and some of the teams, including the Guardians, but at least some movement, right, which is good. Yes, the key thing there will be, you know, your audience for baseball is older. And your audience often is has, um, be it Spectrum or AT&T, you know, they're not all streaming. And so if you roll your games over into the streaming area, then you will lose that chunk of the audience that just has the old cable. In the same way, a lot of the people who cut the cord but were streaming were not able to get the Guardians games. It seems like there's just got to be a way to get your games available to the vast majority of the people to watch them on TV. And so I want to see how they work that out. Yeah, we're going to be finding out a lot here. It's got to happen soon. I mean, spring training is only a couple of weeks away. And so, yeah, this is going to have to move along. But we'll be monitoring that. We'll we'll check back next week and see how things look. So, all right, Terry, what, you, I know you wanted to get in some of the Guardians prospects that you've been checking out. And I was interested. You said that the biggest move of the offseason so far has been trading Cody Morris to the Yankees for Estevan Florial. And why don't we talk about that for a second, and then maybe you can give us an update on Kyle Manzardo and Juan Brito. But what is it about Florial that you think is so important? Well, he's supposed to be a center fielder who can hit for some power. Um, They have kind of reached the end of the line with thinking that they're suddenly going to get Miles Straw back to the guy who is a – it's pretty remarkable, David. Mark, Miles Straw is a 300 hitter in the minors and about a 275 to 280 hitter. Now, granted, the OPS was soft, but nonetheless, uh, early in his career with Houston slash Cleveland. And then the last two years, I mean, he's just fallen totally apart. And offensively, it, it's just been awful. So they went for traded for the Sestiavon. Forio, who hit 28 homers and uh, 954 OPS, and he, and he also stole 20, 25 bases, and he's a good center fielder. I mean, it sounds like a power hitter with, with some athleticism. You could ask yourself, well, why didn't he stick with the Yankees? He's 26. I mean, part of it could be it's just the Yankees. You know, they got all these big there. The other part is, and this is a common thread of three power hitting prospects I looked at. Man, do they strike out. They strike out <laughs> a lot. And odds are one of these three is going to probably hit for some home runs. And Because, by the way, a guy that, you know, uh, they've had other guys in the past that strike out a lot and do a little better. So, um, Florio for, uh, struck out 144 times and 482 plate appearances in um, AAA. That's a lot. That's one every three times. Then, of course, they drafted this uh, Devison De Los Santos, and um, you look at him, uh, he's only 20 years old. He had 254 in AA with 20 homers, 61 RBIs. I find that kind of hard how he's going to make the team. I really do. It just He struck out 125 times at 480 at-bats in AA. I mean, that's, these guys are striking out you know, almost one every three times. And then finally, a guy that I'm intrigued with a little bit, and maybe I'm just hopping on his horse because Oscar Gonzalez is gone, so I'm grabbing another one. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Rodriguez, 286 with 29 homers and 88 RBIs. That was between double A and triple A. He's only 24. But, you know, he struck out 163 times in 500 summit bats. So, all of those guys have that. By the way, in case you missed it, Oscar Gonzalez is now with the Yankees. He'll probably play Triple A for them. Um, so that's where it is. But speaking Flor- of striking out, right? Yes. Although you know his strikeouts actually in the minors were never. That's part of the reason I liked them. Were never nearly as high as these guys. He just never walked. I still am. I admit, David, I'm still shocked that the complete 
I mean, his bat turned to Swiss cheese because even when he did hit the ball, there was no power to it. So I don't really know what happened there. Uh, this is the tough thing about prospects in baseball. The failure rate is, you always say the failure rate is, well, if, you, if you're successful three out of 10 times, that's really good in baseball. I mean, the prospect thing is not even, if you're successful three out of 10 on your top prospects, you're doing really well. Uh, so, I mean, the big prospects coming, you know, Kyle Manzardo, who doesn't have the major strikeout problems, or Juan Brito. Brito is a guy that they're going to start at AAA, and I would not be shocked if by midseason Brito is playing second base for the Guardians and Jimenez moves to short. Wow. Something that uh, has been talked about for a while is moving Jimenez, so yeah. we'll see We'll right. see if that goes and, down. It could happen that fast. That guy's that good. And Manzardo, whether it's first base, I mean, he would be first base, and Nayward would be DH. Um, something like that. Josh, Josh told a lot of people he wanted to try to play the outfield again, but as one top Guardians uh, official told me, he goes, we love Josh, but he just, just says a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, all right, Terry, we got a quick letter here I wanted to get in. We have we have so many Neils. This <laughs> Neil from Akron says, I want to be known as Akron Neil. Maybe we can have all the Neils call themselves by their yeah. town, like a biblical naming. <laughs> yes, ne- that's Neil right. of Akron. But, but Neil says, hey, Terry, for a long time, we've lived with the sense that the Guardians – uh, the Guardian's news predominantly meant decisions were made by Antonetti, Mike Chernoff, and Terry Francona. They created a special identity for successfully leading the organization. How long will it take for all of our ears to hear Guardians and not immediately think Francona, Antonetti, and Chernoff? It's been said that winning silences all critics, but with the Guardians, I feel like winning won't silence the voice that wants to give Francona all the credit. <laughs> uh, habits die hard, don't they? So it's going to take a while, but um, yeah, this new regime is here, and I think people will get used to putting... Stephen vote in that equation yeah, pretty I mean, quickly, I mean, the right? The big thing is Chernoff and, and Antonetti are still here. That's your key part, as opposed to uh, if you had a new front office and a new manager. So, you know, the, they're very big on talking about partnership with the manager and that. This is the thing that I've noticed that uh, has come up the last 10 or 15 years that, like, when I was starting, you never heard – I mean, even – when I covered the Orioles at Hank Peters and Earl Weaver, he never said that Earl was his partner, you know, because he knew he had to have a strong personality to handle Earl Weaver. John Hart never said he was in partnership with Mike Hargrove. Uh, even, I don't, maybe it started with Shapiro kind of being in partnership with Eric Wedge. Um, but after that, now when Francona came in here, it's like, you know, Francona was almost like he could say he's in partnership with the front office the other way because of what he came in with. But that's been the big change. And, you know, they, they say they still are in, in partnership and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of confidence in these guys because of the front office. They had a rocky year last year. There's no question about it. The front office did. But we'll see. And if they get it right with vote, you know, we will have no clue until we begin to watch him probably for like two years. You know, I'm not going to, let's not jump to conclusions one way or the other on Steve vote, how this year goes. Yeah, I did. I did find an interesting Terry this week. The guardians finished off their um, coaching staff with the hire of Dan Puente to be the assistant hitting coach. And I thought this was interesting. You always hear about football teams having yeah. a bunch of very, very specialized assistants. I did not realize that the guardians had a run production coordinator, Jason Esposito. This was in Paul Hoynes' story the other day. I just thought that was interesting. I thought he that does I like analytics that. or something. I don't know. Yeah, they got these guys and yeah, it's well, it's like it's a long time old school. Some, yeah, it's a long time from. And Francona even said early on in his major league career, sometimes he took a turn to go out there and throw batting practice for the guys because they didn't have that many coaches when he was. <laughs> I think managing in Philadelphia or somewhere. So, yeah, well, I was just going to say, in old school ways, you'd be thinking, well, the, the hitting coach is the run production guy. Like he's yeah. the one responsible, but it's more, much more than well, that. Well, now as we you know, have so. passing game coordinators in the NFL yep. and all that, and you know, oh, it fills it out the whole staff out pretty quickly. So it's a full uh, employment. So- no, the FDR would have loved this. This is full employment. <laughs> this should have right, been so like the, one of the big things during the depression, you know, <laughs> and you know, the part of the new deal is they needed more coaches back then in major league baseball to, to just add more jobs. Yeah. Instead of the WPA be the uh, RPA, the run production. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Administration. So, all right. Well, guardians guards fest, I think it's called instead of guardians fest is Saturday. 
and I know a lot of fans will be down there, and you will be too, Terry. So we'll be yeah, able to talk about that to. next week. So yeah, it should be good. So all right, Terry, we're running a little late because we spent a lot of time on the Browns, which is good. But um, I did want to spend a minute talking about your faith column this week. And by the way, don't forget about Terry's book, which came out toward the end of the year last year, The Guy with the Sign and Other Thoughts on Faith in Everyday Life. You can find that at terryplutobook.com. Uh, Terry, your your faith in you column for this week, I, one of the things I love about your column is it's kind of a town square for people where everybody can come and kind of connect. And you were writing about Frank Ryan the last few weeks after the great quarterback from the 1964 Browns passed away. And you got a lot of fan reaction. Frank was dealing with Alzheimer's and you've been talking to Poncho, his son. And your column, which will be in online on Saturday on Cleveland.com and then Sunday in the Plain Dealer, you heard from so many fans um, who were responding to your column about Frank Ryan and dealing with Alzheimer's, including a story from Poncho. Why don't you talk about your faith column for this week and people connecting with each other and learning from maybe how to help somebody who has Alzheimer's? Anybody who's got someone you care about with Alzheimer's, you're always looking for ideas or something. How do I handle this? How can I connect with the person? And that began sort of of people just responding on my Facebook page, responding with emails. Uh, Poncho's, by the way, Poncho was nicknamed by his dad when he was a toddler. In fact, he's always said he's always known he'd been called Poncho. He was born in Texas, so maybe that's where it comes from. He doesn't particularly know why, but because uh, he's Frank Jr. So anyway, but Poncho said they got over 150 emails, and he said the vast majority, 80 or 90 percent, um, you know, they would talk about memories of Frank, and then all of a sudden, boy, my uncle's had Alzheimer's, and I really felt what you're going through. And people have some cool ideas, like um, music therapy. You know, one person wrote in, think of the old songs, and he said he used to just push his wheelchair around with his, his uncle, and they were singing these old songs from like the 50s and 60s, you know, that kind of stuff. And where it seemed like he wasn't relating to now, the music and they they know this. The music comes from a little different part of your brain um, than some of the other stuff. And I learned all that when my dad had a stroke. Like you know, uh, language comes from primarily the left side of your brain. And my dad had very few words that he retained after the stroke. And I wish I'd known and tried music with him. Uh, that would have helped. Another one, you know, old pictures point to the pictures or wedding pictures, that kind of thing, and see how that draws on. Maybe this is all basic Alzheimer's 101, but I've not lived in that world. So I just thought it was good ideas. Frank Ryan, son, Pancho brought a football into Frank one day. This is about a month before he died. And he says he hands it to Frank. Frank's looking at it, looking at it. He puts his fingers over the laces. No, first he licks his thumb puts his fingers over the laces, and then the thumb goes underneath. And he threw a little pass to Pancho, and Pancho said, I almost started to cry because that's exactly how it was when we would play catch in the backyard and, of course, when his father played, you know, the lick of the thumb. And I guess he began talking about that, and his father was smiling and that kind of stuff. So a lot of – and some really tough stories in there too. Uh, good stuff to read. And really good stuff is a good column to pass to other of your friends who are dealing with people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it, it, it's just like you you throw something out there and you hope that it creates that little miracle yeah. spark that mm -hmm. you see. And I think Pancho also told you that he found some clips on YouTube of yes. some 1964 Browns games and was playing that for, for yeah, Frank. And, and that, real, that made him, him want to hear him yeah. over again and, you know, that kind of stuff. So. So yeah, whatever really works, old TV shows. I mean, I know this. Uh, when I stop at the nursing home, see my mom, Melva, the Malachi mother for all these years, there's a big thing after they have dinner. They go over to her room, a couple of them, and they all watch like the Rifleman, and I forgot what else comes on. It's Gunsmoke or something. They watch the old westerns, you know, and it just takes them to a different spot. All right. Well, catch that column this weekend. Some really interesting stuff in there. And I think uh, it's something that, like you said, Terry, people can share. And it, it's just really interesting. So, all right. Um, I think we're good, Terry. I wanted to pull a couple. We're running a little behind. So I'm going to save our letters from our fans about where they're from and why they're Cleveland sports fans. We'll get back to those next week. 
I do want to mention Terry's newsletter. If you want to sign up for that, just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and you can click on Terry's box there and put your email in. It takes like 30 seconds and you can get everything that Terry writes once a week in your inbox every Monday. And we've been talking about survey, Terry, and now that the Browns are done, I'm going to try and get that survey together for next week. We've had some good ideas from fans about some things we can add into the podcast and it's so funny i was watching the game over the weekend and it was a menards commercial and they're using our theme song from the podcast well there you are <laughs> which cracked me up so i'm like hey that's the terry's talking theme song so i don't know maybe we need to change music or maybe we keep it the same it's a song called icarus by uh el flaco collective i think is the name of the group so maybe we can talk about changing music as long as it's not me playing accordion i think we're going to be okay so <laughs> all right we done yeah, we, that is it. All right. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking about Guards Fest. We'll see what else comes out of the Browns facility in Berea. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you, and we will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.